This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Bark beetles have chomped on Colorado's forests for more than two decades. They blighted millions of acres of spruce and pine trees. But what does that mean for animals like squirrels and bears? Jake Ivan, a Colorado parks and wildlife biologist, wants to answer that question. He joins me to talk about the results of his new study. Hi, Jake. Hi, Avery. We've heard a lot in the last few years about how bark beetles have destroyed trees, but the overall ecological picture is way more complicated, and it seems surprising to say some mammals are actually benefiting. So which are the so-called winners in this changing landscape? Yeah, I think you know, anytime you have a, a big change like this, you know, there's there's always going to be winners and there's always going to be, you know, quote unquote losers. Um, and, and in this case, the winners seem to be uh, our ungulate species. So, so we found that... Um, Elk and, and mule deer and, and moose are, are among the species that tend to, in some way, shape, or form, respond relatively positively to this change, at least over the, the decade or so that, that's um, ensued since, since we sampled these places. And when you're saying positive, you're looking really specifically at the numbers of those populations, right? Uh, actually, no. What, what, we, what we measured here was more of a, a little bit more coarse than that. What we're, what we're looking at is use of these areas. So what we've documented is that use of a, a particular forest stand might increase after beetles go by uh, if you're an elk. Uh, and same thing for, for deer and, and for moose. And why are they doing better, do you think? You know, that's a great question. Um, what we did is, is purely an observational study. So all we can do is sort of postulate why, why that might be. I would, I would imagine... You know, when you when the beetles go through an area, they t- they generally take out the older, more mature, uh, overstory trees, and that that opens up the canopy and allows a lot of sunlight down uh, to the ground, and and you tend to get a big flush of of grasses and forbs and shrub cover and that kind of thing. And and we know that you know that in terms of forage, that's that's something that these ungulate species key into. So I, I would guess that that you know that that um, is potentially a big driver of their increased use. And does it impact where the elk and deer are migrating if they're using some areas more than others? Are they staying in certain places longer or ending up in places they haven't been in the past? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I think a lot of the, you know, the large scale movements in terms of seasonal migrations and that sort of thing are, are probably relatively unchanged. But um, on, on a smaller scale, the, yeah, maybe, um, you know, some places that are more severely impacted and have a good flush of this new forage, maybe they choose to spend a bit more time there to take advantage of that relative to what they would have otherwise. Interesting. And which mammals are not doing as well? Yeah, great question. So so one species in particular that's not doing well is is red squirrels. Uh, and And we think, we don't know for sure, but we think that's probably related to the loss of cone crops. So most of the most of the cone crop in these, these forests is produced by those older, mature trees that have been impacted by the beetles. And so um, squirrels generally collect all those things and, and put them in middens, and that's what they feed off all winter. And if they don't have that, you know, that's probably uh, a, a reason for their, for their uh, decreased use in some of these places. And if you're looking mostly at places that they're using, is there a possibility that the squirrels are moving to other areas, or are you thinking that the population itself might be declining? Yeah, I think it, it's probably B. So um, for for two reasons, one, you know, the, the squirrels are you know relatively small animal and they can't move all that far, and this and so the the beetle impact is so huge relative to their home range and their dispersal capability. I, I'm not sure where else they could go. Uh, but also, we've recently done some follow-up work um, to actually measure uh, squirrel density and abundance, and have found that that is has in fact um, 
uh, declined. So use has declined, and it seems to be mostly due to uh, lower numbers of individuals in these places. And I'm imagining that these are small animals, so they're probably food for other animals. Is the decline of red squirrels rating up the food chain at all? Uh, it, it could be. It, it, certainly, you're right. The red, red squirrels are, are high on the diet list of, of several other species, like American Martin, for, for one. Uh, another species that we have a lot of interest in here in Colorado is Canada lynx. Um, they're sort of a secondary uh, food item for Canada lynx. Lynx feed mostly on snowshoe hares, which seem to have weathered this uh, bark beetle outbreak okay. But we do know that uh, hare populations fluctuate, and when they go down when the numbers decline, that that about the only other thing that that lynx will eat are are squirrels, and so they turn to squirrels to get them through those quote unquote bad times. And so, you know, that that's potentially one sort of cascading event is, you know, the next time hair numbers um, decline and there potentially aren't as many squirrels around in these forests uh, in a post beetle environment, then you know what happens uh, at that point. And that's worrying because there's some concern about the health of the Canadian lynx population, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in the United States, uh, the Canada lynx um, is, is listed as a threatened species. So there's you know, this underlying uh, level of concern that it's just naturally a, a rare uh, species. The, the population densities are never very high, and, and there is concern uh, over their continued persistence in Colorado and elsewhere. Yeah. And Colorado has a lot of forests and a lot of mammals. How do you study all of these different populations? Yeah, that, that's tough. Uh, the, the way we chose to do it is to make use of these new game cameras or wildlife cameras, camera traps, whatever you want to call them. So we deployed 300 of these things all across the state in uh, subalpine forests from from the New Mexico line to the, to the Wyoming line uh, and left them out there to just to just gather photos and gather pictures of uh, all of the various species walking by. And that's how we chose to, to sample the, the mammalian community. So that gets us sort of this presence, absence, use kind of data from that, that kind of collection device. I thought it was really interesting in your study. You called bark beetle infestations important disturbance agents. So in other words, these infestations have been shaping forests for thousands of years. But right. is this infestation different than others? Yeah, it appears it appears so, and I'm no entomologist, but uh, from from the literature that, that that's out there that you can read, uh, th- this particular uh, outbreak is is certainly the largest in in recorded history uh, in terms of both an aerial extent and that there's several beetle species that are all experiencing an outbreak all at the same time, and so that we know of uh, in, in in history, um, it, it's, it's it's certainly the largest that. Um, that we've ever seen. So I know we've had pine trees being infested and spruce trees, so it's not normal to have these different beetles that infest different kinds of trees all at once. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that that's, you know, something that always happens. So, you know, we, we focused on, like you said, pine beetles and, and lodgepole pine trees and spruce beetles and Engelman spruce trees. But at the same time, there's pinion nips impacting pinion trees and dug fir trees have their own uh, bark beetle, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all happening at the same time. And is there concern that climate change is responsible for the intensity of this infestation? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think there's ample evidence out there that that's that's at least part of it um, for sure. It, it impacts the the tree side of things, uh, you know, extended drought and, and heat. Um, it, it can be tough on trees and, and can and can make it so their ability to to ward off uh, uh, bark beetle infestations is is diminished. And so you have that in it, but at the, at the same time that it's sort of um, impacting trees negatively, 
uh, all these bark beetles are, are cold-blooded uh, animals. And so the, the, the temperatures during the summer and the amount of, of summer that we have really impacts their ability um, to, uh, to a, 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 at a population level, um, it, it really increases their ability to, to reach these academic, ep- epidemic levels. In, in the grand scheme of things, these are very recent landscape changes that these mammals are adjusting to. How long term do you think this shift is going to be? Uh, it's it's going to be long term. It's it's going to be decades uh, to to even longer. Uh, we, we've, we've certainly changed the composition of of all these forest stands, uh, as well as the structure, and sort of hit the reset button on succession to to earlier successional stages. And that just you know it takes a long time to to work back through. So it it the impacts will be felt for for decades for sure. I'm curious, is there anything that surprised you in your study? Did you find what you expected to? Uh, you know, in some cases, we 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 found things that were expected. You know, the the red squirrel um, decreased use was kind of expected. The increased use by ungulates was was relatively expected. And I've done a lot of work on snowshoe hares in the past. And one thing we know about hares is that their densities are very much tied to understory cover. So one thing that kind of surprised me is I thought that. Uh, when we open up the canopy, that through time hair density would increase uh, in in these places because we're we're gaining understory cover as we let more light uh, into that understory layer, and we didn't really see that. Um, what we saw is across a gradient of from green forest to forest that had been impacted, you know, more than a decade ago. That that hair use of those places didn't really change much. Interesting study. Thank you so much, Jake. Yeah, thank you. That's Jake Ivan, Colorado Parks and Wildlife researcher. He's studying the impact of bark beetle infestation on animals. There are now just hours left in Colorado's legislative session. State lawmakers have just until before midnight to wrap up their business. And there's plenty on the to-do list. CPR's Sam Brash is here to let us know what to watch for as the day goes on. Hi, Sam. Hey, Avery. The session has to go at, or rather, has to end at midnight. But do you really expect that they'll work right up until that deadline? Uh, yeah, absolutely, as do most lawmakers. I mean, that would be an early night compared to some of the other evenings we've seen this week. The state center pulled pretty much an all-nighter Monday night, working until 5 a.m. on Tuesday. And the reason is just this huge backlog of bills. Uh, when I checked yesterday, there still were about 100 bills on the calendar, so there's no shortage of work to do, and they're, they're going to be right up against the deadline. And is there any way lawmakers could make it through that many bills before tonight's deadline? Um, no. So Steve Fenberg is the Democratic Senate majority leader. So his job is to manage the state Senate and its calendar. And his chamber is where the backup is really the worst. And he's already had to give up on a number of bills. They're still technically alive, but they're still sort of permanently delayed. There are some bills that have been laid over to the point where they don't have enough time in the process. Some of them maybe didn't have the votes. Some of them were about prioritization of the time that we have left. And Republicans in the state legislature, again, especially in the Senate, have worked to eat up as much of that time as possible and raise the pressure on Democrats. Right. But there's no filibuster in the state legislature. So Republicans, how have they been able to slow things down and run out the clock? 
Yeah, that's true. There's no filibuster, but minority Republicans have been pretty creative. They come up uh, or used uh, old-fashioned delay tactics like asking bills to be read at length, giving these long, drawn-out speeches. Republicans say that's, you know, their prerogative. It's it's not breaking the rules, and it's a necessary response to Democrats, who they say have been ramming through legislation. Uh, Democrats, as I'm sure you might imagine, say it's just obstructionism and that they won the elections last November and should be given the chance to govern. And what has that accomplished for Republicans? Um, a lot. I mean, I'm talking to some Republicans who say they're even surprised about how well it's worked. Uh, you've seen the pressure force Democrats to give up on some pretty key bills for them. I mean, one really clear example was this bill to ban styrofoam to-go containers. And the sponsor pulled the bill, and he was pretty frank about why. He didn't want to see it eat it. Uh, time, uh, take a long debate, and and wanted to get on to other uh, priorities. This is a less clear example, but it's worth mentioning, was um, legislation to make it more difficult uh, for some families to get vaccine exemptions for for their kids. This was a huge contentious debate at the Capitol. Uh, Governor Polis had signaled his opposition to it, but some Democrats wanted to to face him down and and maybe force a veto. Um, Instead, they tabled it in, in the state Senate, and it's just not moving forward. And now with hours left, what are the biggest issues still to be decided today? That, that's a really good question. Um, I think one that was scratched off the list, and this is worth mentioning, uh, was a tax increase on nicotine and tobacco products. This was something that uh, Governor Polis and some Democrats introduced at the very last minute. It was meant to really take on teen vaping and, and raise state revenues, but it died la- last night in the state Senate because many Democrats uh, voted against it. But there's still plenty to do. You know, one other one to mention is just this huge, complicated bill to help uh, utilities transition to renewable energy. So there, there's plenty to watch, and we'll be keeping people up to date. Now, what if they just can't get through all of those issues? Governor Polis does have the chance to call them back to the Capitol for a special session after the close of regular session today, right? Yeah, um, but as far as we know, the governor hasn't given any indication that that's uh, his intention. House Speaker Casey Becker has said that if some Democratic priorities don't pass, then it's a real possibility. But I'd say at this point, um, we don't have any good evidence that a special session could be on its way. This session was the first time Democrats had full control of the legislature and the governor's office since 2014. Did they get everything they wanted this year? No. And and I think that's the real story of this legislative session. Um, You know, Democrats did a lot. They passed an update to Colorado's oil and gas regulations, the most substantial update in, you know, since the 1950s. They passed a red flag law, which allowed uh, judges to seize firearms to someone deemed a threat to themselves or others. And they passed this huge package of criminal justice reform. So I I don't want to, you know, belittle any of that because those are large accomplishments for Democrats. Um, But some of their biggest priorities just couldn't make it across the finish line. You know, a plan to guarantee 12 weeks of paid family leave, uh, that ended up being converted into a study. And this has been a Democratic priority for years, and and they couldn't make it happen. A plan to ban the death penalty, they they couldn't make that happen either. I mean, I think after this session, you're going to see a lot of Democrats, especially in the state Senate, really wondering if they know how to wield the power they won in the last election. That's going to be a busy day. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Avery. CPR's reporters Sam Brash and Binta Berklin will be following all the final twists and turns of the legislative session and keeping us up to date throughout the day. This is CPR News.
Needless to say, it sounds pretty stressful at the state's capital right now. And Sam, earlier this week, you checked out one of the ways that people are getting a break from the tension. Lobbyist Laura Lee Hollinghorst describes the final days of the legislative session as a literal marathon. She spends a lot of her time running back and forth between the House and the Senate, tracking bills and trying to keep up. There's a lot of reading. There's not a lot of sleeping. And so by this time, nerves are a little frayed and people are tired and we all just try to keep our sense of humor. And for me, I visit the doggies. Hollinghorst walks to an office door. Taped to the center is a warning and a promise. An 8x11 printout reading Office Dogs at Play. A pack of four dogs mobs Hollinghorst. Among them is her favorite, a Jack Russell corgi mix named Gary Oldman. We met at the beginning of the session and fell in love. Gary belongs to Democratic State Senator Carrie Donovan, who's currently preoccupied on the Senate floor. That means Hollinghorse can enjoy his full, undivided attention. Isn't this better than contentious Hello. debate? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The occupants of this office have turned it into an oasis for anyone who needs a break from the tumult outside. Michael Templeton, a Senate aide, has bossa nova playing in the background and a machine puffing calming aromas into the air. Yeah, what's in the diffuser right now? Lavender, lemon, and rosemary. Oh my god. Yeah, it's fancy. It helps to have a nice place to uh, sit and enjoy the quiet. It's a quiet filled with the occasional tussle over a tennis ball. Quick. Hollinghorse, the lobbyist, just loves it. Yeah, the mood in here is so joyous and fun. And again, a reminder that... We're just all human beings in this building. We get dog hair on our skirt just like everybody else. It's important to remember how unprecious we are and how precious they are. Then she checks her phone and sees the time. Bye, Gary. Bye, Sven. See you guys later. And with that, it's back to the far less adorable world of human legislative business, which, by the way, lasts until 11.59 p.m. on Friday. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Read more and see pup pictures at Denverite.com. After weeks of controversy and debate, the University of Colorado has a new president. In a split vote yesterday afternoon, the Board of Regents approved Mark Kennedy to take over the CU system. Colorado Matters spoke with Kennedy in the weeks leading up to this vote about his vision for the university. What really animates me is the fact that technology is transforming our lives and the universities. Uh, you got the have and the have-nots technologically. Technology is benefiting some, leaving others behind. We need to do a better job bringing the benefits of technology, preparing them for the careers of tomorrow, whether it be the single mother seeking to enhance her career or a 53-year-old laid-off worker looking to chart a new path. At the same time, this new economy is creating Jobs that we haven't even thought of, and most of the students today will work at careers that haven't even been invented yet. That requires critical thinking. So we at the university need to make sure that we're putting contrasting views in front of them, that we're having debates in a thoughtful, respectful way. And third of all, our waning commitment to research threatens to leave us behind. So I'm personally committed to calling for a renewed academic government business partnership to redouble our commitment to maintaining our nation's innovative edge. CU has campuses in Denver, Boulder, and Colorado Springs, as well as Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora. Kennedy told us that he has the skills needed to lead the CU system. 
to lead an organization of the size and scale of University of Colorado, you need somebody with three separate skills. You need to have somebody that has experience in academia. And I have found that having taught at Johns Hopkins made me a better school leader at George Washington University. And having been that school leader at GW made me a better president at the University of North Dakota. You also need to know how to manage an organization of $4.5 billion. Having been treasurer of Macy's, which is as large as any company in Colorado, I have the experience of leading organizations at the scale of University of Colorado. And third of all, you're a public university with a lot of constituencies that need to be actively engaged, brought together with a common vision. And so bringing together that academic business and political experience is absolutely vital. The CU system has an estimated 67,000 students. One of the questions that caused debate in the approval process is whether he'd ensure LGBTQ inclusion. I am committed to respecting the dignity of each individual student, faculty, staff, members of the community. They'll have the full support to do whatever we can to get them to graduation, make them feel welcome on campus. And I will do that no matter who they love or how they identify CU has nine elected regents, five Republicans and four Democrats. The vote to make Kennedy CU's next president was along party lines. After the vote, Kennedy said his next step is clear. The order of the day is to build unity, build unity amongst the regents, amongst the university, amongst the state. The good news is I had six strong-willed siblings that I worked hard to try to figure out where we're going to go for dinner. I've been in Congress pulling together bipartisan committees on common action. But I've also unified University of North Dakota towards a common vision. So I'm looking forward to listening, to learning, to engaging, to building those bridges. That's what I'm focused on. And, and I know I need to earn the trust of regents, of faculty, of students and staff, and will be very focused on doing just that. That's Mark Kennedy, the new president of the University of Colorado. We spoke with him about his vision for the CU system before the vote and right after. When we come back, a refuge that's helping wolves and people at the same time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committees. There's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. There is a wolf sanctuary in southern Colorado that doesn't just help wolves. It's a refuge for humans, too. It's been two years that I've been wandering around trying to figure out where I fit. If you make the choice to come, you get the gift of being healed in whatever way that you need to be healed or learn in whatever way that you need to learn. Those are volunteers featured in a new documentary called Mission Wolf, An Experiment in Living. Kent Weber founded the refuge some 30 years ago. Hi, Kent. Hi. Mission Wolf is located up in the mountains west of Pueblo. Can you give me a sense of how remote it is and what it's like? 
Yeah, the idea was to get the wolves as far away from one thing as possible, and that was people. So it's 15 miles just on the roughest dirt road you can find. Uh, there's no signs up there. We don't want to be a roadside zoo. But we simply located a, a large tract of private land next to the National Forest, uh, fenced in huge areas. And we found by giving the wolves a sanctuary, a place where they could hide, instead of pacing around like you so oftentimes see in a zoo, the wolves thought it was fun to meet neighbors. And what kind of wolves do you take into your sanctuary? Yeah, that's one thing. Every wolf we have has one common thread. They were born in a cage. They come from zoos, wildlife parks, the movie process, expats, shelters. Uh, You can't save the world. We've turned away 10,000 homeless ones. So you're taking in wolves that essentially can't live on their own in the wild anymore, but you're giving them a wild place to live. Yeah. Wild means free and independent. When you put wild in a cage, you kind of destroy it. But we're in an environment where humans are being told we've destroyed so much nature. You ought to protect it. Now you're being told buy a wolf as a pet, own a piece of nature. And we estimate there's over 3 million in cages right now. And the unique thing about a wolf, unlike a bear or a raccoon or even a coyote, those three are loners. You can rehab them back to the wild. But a wolf is so social that once they're born in a cage, they're doomed to life in a cage forever. And I just want to be clear, these are wolves that were not born in the wild, but they're also not domesticated. Yeah, they're what you'd call tame. Uh, Domestic means they want to please you. Uh, A domestic horse wants to make you happy. A dog will let you slap it on top of the head all day. It's not because the dog likes to be batted on top of the head by a little kid's hand. We've taught dogs. That's what we like. So a dog is subservient. They want to please you. And a wolf is kind of like a bear. You could have a baby bear in your house for, what, six months. At about nine months of age, that baby bear is going to start getting independent. And kind of like a 19-year-old kid, don't tell me what to do anymore. They become independent. And as you're putting this mission together and as you're maintaining it, you don't actually charge admission for people who come and visit. It's a nonprofit and people can donate what they'd like. Tourists come for a couple of hours or they camp for a couple of days. But some people choose to stay for weeks and months and even years. And those long-term volunteers, what is the living situation like for them? The interesting thing is we tried to hide and it didn't quite work. And we found that happy wolves make happy people. And the next thing, so many people showed up to see the wolves. I couldn't get my house built. We couldn't get the fence built. And we finally said, that's it. We really don't own wild animals. They, it's sad that we have to own property. But we decided that's it. Just put the land in the wolf's name. We did that as a nature center under the name of Mission Wolf as a nonprofit. We tell people, if you can find us, good job. We show you the wolves. If you don't scare the wolves, you can spend the night. If you survive a week, you get some food. If you put in two months, you get a teepee to sleep in. So you weren't even necessarily seeking out this community volunteers that sort of sprung up around you. Mission Wolves become an unintentional community, and I think that's where the magic is. Uh, If you put an expectation on people, they always have a difference of what reality is, and thus a disappointment. So we don't let anybody put an expectation on the wolves. You can't buy your way in there. You can't come there because you know something more than somebody. It's just if you can find us, cool. We'll show you the wolves. Some people like five minutes. Oh my God, we're at 9,000 foot. There's no oxygen. There's no burgers. There's no soda pop machine. We're 10 miles from the nearest electric pole. So everything's solar powered. When you get people that work together for a common goal, 
they work all day and they thank each other and they support each other, which is so different than our world of competition that most of us are engaged in. But not everybody who decides to stay is an outdoorsy person. Here's a clip from the documentary featuring one of the volunteers, Will, a Yale graduate. I had to like ask people how to help me like not die. <laughs> and he's not kidding. Uh, we've never had anyone die at Mission Wolf. But what it comes down to is most of the folks have never pushed a wheelbarrow. They've not used a shovel. They have no clue what a clutch is. And to the folks, if you're going to live in the woods, you learn really quick that if you hold the hammer at the bottom, it swings harder. And it's a life about just simply surviving. So I've watched people so out of their element. And a young girl from Boston, never been in the woods, 25 years old, and woke up with a bear 10 feet from her teepee. Came up, of course, all excited. What are you doing? I gave her two frying pans. And she's like, you got to be kidding me. And I'm like, no. I said, just bang the pans together. And the bear took off running. Um, so if you learn animal behavior, we can avoid conflicts. But it is an eye-opener uh, to a whole world of people that are just uh, so deprived of nature all they want to do is have an experience with it. So in a lot of ways, you're not just taking care of wolves. You're also taking care of people who have never been around nature this way. I've always enjoyed taking my college buddies when I was in engineering out into the woods. And we'd camp at the top of Mount Albert, highest point in Colorado, at New Year's, four years in a row. And that was in igloos, winter camping. And as I look back on all the experiences of my life, taking people out and letting them wake up, especially in an environment where you might not make it out of there if you don't have your faculties together. Um, it gives you a humbleness, uh, a sense of purpose, and I think that's what Mission Wolf provides today is an opportunity where anyone that is just motivated enough to find the place can do something. And I want to know more about how volunteers take care of the wolves. Yeah, the wolves really don't care about us. And you don't blame them. Uh, the majority of the wolves we've got were raised in other areas. They don't have any clue of social skills. And then when they mature, they can't be handled. And that's the people that call us every week. I got a wolf as a pet, tore up my house, tore up the yard. I don't want it. So those wolves, we give it a sanctuary, a beautiful place to hide. And the staff, we feed them, we water them. But if you're afraid of what feeds you, that's a stressful way to live life. So that's what the staff learn. If they walk up to a wolf, especially us guys, we're kind of focused. We tend to hunch over a little bit, hunter-like. That scares animals. Um, generally, the smaller person, the feminine side, is a maternal instinct that looks up and is more in their peripheral vision. So I find different people get complete different reactions from different wolves. And a wolf that might just love you might be scared of me even though I take care of it. And a wolf that might just adore me might be afraid of you. And it generally comes down to our body posture. It sounds like a lot of what the volunteers are doing is feeding the wolves. What are the wolves eating? So the staff, for the most part, they feed the wolves a 1,000 pounds of meat a week. It's a grueling job. Everybody thinks it's so romantic to live with the wolf. It's a bloody mess. Um, and then, of course, cleaning up after the wolves is a job, building the fences. We've got almost 50 acres fence. That's huge. That's bigger than entire zoos for multiple species. Uh, and then we have a few wolves that, for whatever reason, they're think it's fun to be around people. They have no flight reaction. 
they aren't going to do what you tell them to do like a dog. But if you're calm with them, they're calm with you. If you're playful, they're playful. And so those are the special roles, the ambassadors, as people call them, that represent nature. And uh, so over the years, we found that the staff probably's best job is taking visitors and getting them as close to a wolf without scaring a wolf and also allowing the visitor or the individual to have a personal experience with nature. That's what says it all. I want to talk more about why people come and volunteer at Mission Wolf. The documentary includes a woman named Rachel describing her tough childhood. I've always said that when my dad died, my mom died with him. My mom um, drank a lot and would give us to anyone that would look after us. She didn't like drinking alone, so she made me drink as well. So I was 13. But then I'd have to go home and then wake up, make sure my brother was okay, go to work, come back home, clean the house, do everything that a mother should do. My mom couldn't do it, so I stood up and done it. So me and my brother had to go around asking if we could have some food because we had no food, which is a very degrading thing to do. What do people like this get from volunteering at Mission Wolf? When you get to look at an animal that's not coming to you for food, it's coming to see who you are, they look right through you. And it's a calming process. I've had people walk out and go, that wolf interrogated me. It scanned my mind. It read my mind. They look right at it. And the therapists go, the individual felt heard for the first time. It helps them release the trauma. And so we don't know what's going on, but we went out there to help wolves. And the long and short of it, it's helping people a lot more. Hmm. And the volunteers, do they form a community that support each other as well? You have to. <laughs> Our poor friend, Will, I uh, I didn't realize he had never started a fire before, much less he had to get one going in the morning because it's cold. And I've had a blast watching a lot of these people have eye-opening experiences of just basic survival. Things that they took for granted all of a sudden aren't there anymore. And I also want to talk about handling conflict, because you mentioned that you have this unintentional community where you have people of all different backgrounds coming together. I'm imagining that sometimes there are points where there is conflict. I've probably been, I want to say, Papa to over a thousand kids that have shared up to a year to two years of my life, over 30 years living in her house, eating food. And I watch them start flirting with each other. I watch them start arguing with each other. And the thing is, I don't know that you're flirting with someone else, but the wolf tells me, oh, my God, you're putting on a show for them, and they're putting on a show for you, and the wolf won't go near either one of you. They know instantly. So the next thing we started learning is so many people, they just want to interact with nature. And they're so stressed that if they put so much pressure on it, the wolf won't come near them. So a lot of our conflict resolution is learning basic behaviors. You show intent with your head straight up. You keep yourself in your peripheral vision. A good teacher walks in the room, head up. So that's what we have little kids do with the wolves. They walk in and the wolves get out of their way and see him as a leader. Uh, conflict. The way to resolve conflict is not aggression. It's to ignore. A uh, good dog trainer ignores the dog at bad behavior. They don't reward it with yelling. 
unfortunately, we're in a world that now reacts to conflict by yelling, and that just reinforces it. So by showing these two behaviors, intent and ignore, that can give a five-year-old leadership to walk in with the wolf. It's pretty fascinating to see. The next one is we show the staff, if you mirror somebody, you gain trust. If you mimic somebody, you stop motion. So when wolves are scared, we move with them. And all of a sudden, the wolf's like, what are you doing? Every time I turn, you turn. Yep. And all of a sudden, the wolf stops and looks at you like, oh, yep, not doing anything. And the wolf stops. So it says, if you're calm, I'll be calm. And then the last one, which is so important today, is you play to learn. We're doing therapy and programs where we show play is not about trying to win a conversation. If you try to win a conversation with your spouse, you're not going to get anywhere. And this is such an unusual calling. How did you come to be taking care of a wolf refuge? I never liked animals in cages. I grew up in the woods, and when I learned there was more wolves in cages than in the wild, that was really sad. And then when I met one and the people couldn't handle it, no, don't kill it here, we'll take it, and met another friend that had one, and then we met some people that had uh, wolves bred with dogs, and they wanted it to look wolfy and act doggy. And what we started learning is, okay, we'll help this one. And I never wanted to train it. I never wanted to do anything other than turn it loose. Well, I knew it was just going to suffer. It'd be more humane for me to shoot them than turn them loose because they won't make it in the wild. Um, so that's the next best, give them a huge home. Um, and I think that's what started Mission Wolf, but it was in pessimism. I was broke. I had worked engineering and architecture, was feeding so many wolves, we were feeding 2,000 pounds of meat a week. And the back was broke. The bank was broke. I was like, this is this is mission impossible. I was pessimistic. I was mad. In the lower 48 states, there was very, very few, less than 1,000 wolves in one state, Minnesota. And how do you get wolves back in the wild? I didn't think that would ever happen in our lifetime. How do you keep a wolf happy in a cage? That seemed to be impossible. So that's where the word mission wolf came from. We went out to just give the wolf as big of a space to run, get it away from people, give it as a natural home, feed it like it would in the wild, feast and famine. And the next thing we found is everyone and their brother wanted a part of it. So today we have 60 youth groups scheduled this summer alone. Each group will come up and live with us for three to 10 days. I'll have 60 kids camping in my backyard for the next three to four months. Uh, our staff swells up to over 20 staff. And now we have staff that coordinate staff. And so that's what happened is we didn't ask for volunteers. People started calling themselves volunteers. And today we have so many people that want to help. That's literally one of our biggest stresses. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for coming in today to talk about wolves. You bet. Kent Weber founded a wolf sanctuary in southern Colorado. It's the subject of a new documentary, Mission Wolf, Experiment in Living. Most of Colorado is out of drought, thanks to a winter that brought snow, historic avalanches, and even bomb cyclones to the state. For farmers, it's proving to be both good and bad news. CPR's environmental reporter Grace Hood looks into what's next. 2018 was a traumatic year in southwestern Colorado. First, soil and growing conditions dried out. Then the wildfires came. Those drove tourists away. For a group of vegetable growers in Cortez, that meant fewer sales to local restaurants. Businesses and clients shrank. I think that they also 
we're starting to freak out a little bit. Kendra Brewer is general manager for Southwest Farm Fresh Cooperative in Cortez. She says her co-op took a 10 percent hit in sales last year. 2018 was the driest on record since weather watchers began tracking it nearly a century ago. Now it's a wild swing in the other direction. The region has the highest snowpack in the state. Having all this water right now has buoyed a lot of spirits and and people are hopeful and, and optimistic. What a difference a year makes. The state's snowpack is well above average. Almost all of the state is out of drought. Colorado assistant climatologist Becky Bollinger says that will really help the state's parched reservoirs. This is the best year that you could have after what we had last year. Take, for example, McPhee Reservoir, a critical water supply for farmers in southwest Colorado. In early February, it was just 7 percent full. Now it's a quarter full and expected to fill all the way up. And reservoir managers might even let extra water run down the river for boaters and recreators. She says record-setting snow levels in February and March combined with cool temperatures made all the difference. We have an excellent amount of storage in that snow that's getting ready to just, just flow out. It's actually started. How fast it all melts does matter. If it gets too hot too quick, a lot of water will come all at once. And too much water can also be a problem. Brian Wilson grows hay in Montezuma County. The runoff has barely started, and already he can't plant his fields because they're too wet. (laughs) It's excellent. (laughs) It's a picture unimaginable one year ago. It is crazy from before. Wilson estimates he's about two weeks behind schedule. As he waits for his fields to dry out, he's purchasing more fertilizer and supplies. This year, he expects to grow more hay, but he also worries because he spent more money than usual. There's always a gamble, yes. I mean, we're hoping to at least, you know, break even, make a little bit um, to, to recoup some of the losses we've had. That's on top of other headwinds facing farmers, things like tariffs, low commodity prices, or worker shortages prompted by the Trump administration's immigration policies. Add climate change to this growing list. Reagan Wascom heads up the Colorado Water Institute at Colorado State University. He says hotter temperatures will bring a slew of impacts. What we do know is that if it's hotter, there will be more evaporation less recharge, and less runoff. But there are a lot of questions. One thing that is known, says Wascom, is that there will be more swings, like what happened in southwest Colorado between 2018 and 2019. So we may have drier dries and wetter wets and hotter hots. You know, we'll figure out how to deal with climate, but it's those weather extremes, drought, flood, hail, That's really hard to cope with. Wascom says Colorado State University is making great strides in developing seeds and technologies that farmers can use in the future. But that won't get rid of the white-knuckle emotional roller coaster for farmers. That may prove to be one of their biggest challenges in the future. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Five hundred years ago this week, the great Leonardo da Vinci died. But his legacy and genius has lived on through the centuries, 
even in some surprising ways. There are many inventions today that are built on the foundation of his ideas, inspired by his ideas. This one over here is a parachute. We know we have parachutes today. This one looks a little dubious. It's a really good example of how he was, again, a man ahead of his time. That's Jennifer Moss Logan with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. She's standing inside the museum's exhibition, Leonardo da Vinci, 500 Years of Genius, along with CPR's Alexandra McMahon. The exhibit uses da Vinci's drawings and sketches to bring his inventions to life. Right in front of us, we can see a self-moving car. And interestingly, this was one of the few inventions that was actually built. And we think it was probably used in the theater. So people think about Leonardo as being a painter and an inventor and a scientist. He was also into the arts and into the pageants and theater of the time. And so in this case, some of his work that he was doing was for these theaters, and this would have allowed parts and pieces to move across the stage during the show as if by magic, but in fact driven by the inventiveness and engineering capabilities of Leonardo da Vinci. He didn't just make flying machines and theater equipment. Moss Logan also points out the large role da Vinci played in the 16th century weapons industry. Here we have Leonardo da Vinci, a pacifist, an animal lover, vegetarian, someone who called war a bestial insanity. That's how he described war. And yet here we have around us some of the most brutal war machine ideas that you could imagine at the time. And some pretty gruesome ones at that. There are scythes, sharp, sharp blades that whirl around and spin as if to cut up the enemy as they move. Uh, Here we have another example of that with this whirling machine that just cuts and, and causes terror as it goes. Multiply firing weapons, cannons, machine gun, and we even have idealized bullets to ensure that they reach their destination. So why did a pacifist make such things? Moss Logan reads a quote that's painted on the wall above some of his war machines. Nothing can be loved or hated unless it is first understood. And so when Leonardo was writing these words, what he perhaps was saying to us is that you have to dig into something, whether that is philosophically or in an engineering fashion or a physics fashion, you have to dig in and really try to understand it at its very base level. And from there, you can really have a a firm grasp on what it means. He may have been referring to his machines. He may have been referring to a very specific mechanical piece. How interesting it is if he was referring to war itself. Visitors to the exhibit can also learn about da Vinci firsthand from some of his friends. He's a wonderful man. I met him when I was 21 years old. We were born the same year, he and I. I was at the studio of Verrocchio looking at this new painting that was just finished, and he asked me to to pose for him for another painting. And then some 11 years later or so, he was well known by then, and I saw him again, and I asked him if he remembered that time. He said, yes, you posed even though that fly was crawling on your body. And we laughed so hard. And ever since that day, we've been best friends. Okay, so that's not really Fiametta from 1519. This is one of several historical enactors at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. If you go, she'll likely invite you to play the popular card game Tarochi. 
popular, at least during Leonardo da Vinci's time. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Leonardo da Vinci, 500 Years of Genius, runs at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science through August. Finally today, this week celebrated International Jazz Day. It was established in 2011 by the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. The goal? Highlight jazz and its diplomatic role of uniting people in all corners of the globe. So we thought it'd be nice to hear some jazz of our own corner of the globe. This is Denver cornetist Ron Miles and the track titled to his 2017 album, I Am a Man. It took inspiration from striking sanitation workers in 1968 Memphis. Miles was just four at the time, but he remembers the signs and the phrase they adopted proclaiming their essential humanity. I am a man. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.